This is my actual favorite topic. And there are a number of ways in which I will uh, demonstrate romanticism to you. And the thing that I want to impress upon everybody tonight is that we're all romantics. Uh, and that's why I set the room up this way, because the setup of the room is a prop that demonstrates romanticism. The fact that I'm wearing uh, an indigenous image on my shirt and uh, a Middle Eastern belt uh, is a prop that demonstrates romanticism. The painting above me is a romantic painting. The poem that I'll read a little bit later is a romantic poet uh, poem. And by the end of the night, what you will see is that we live in the world that the romantics created. And we are romantics without realizing it. And a lot of the things that we take for granted were actually inventions at one point, were radical new ideas that now you wouldn't even, they're so common that you don't even think of them as an idea because they've just become the way it is. See, the way, the way ideas work is when they first appear, they, they stand out against the background. Right? So reality is basically all the ideas that we, that we just assume are true, and therefore we don't even see them anymore. <clears throat> and then against that background of assumed ideas about what's real, new ideas appear like in relief. Oh my god, what is, that's weird. And then eventually, you know, this idea gets so popular that it's, it's now spread in every direction, so no one sees it anymore. So that's, that's how ideas work. So a lot of the, the ways that the romantics imagined life could be is the way life is for us. I mean, if they came here, they would think, oh, this is what we wanted. This is what we, this, we knew this was possible. Now, of course, they didn't anticipate a lot of the, the negative sides of romanticism, but uh, certainly a lot of the positives we have achieved uh, and attained. So, so maybe I'll go through a few props first, because that'll kind of set the stage. So behind me is a, a painting this is very appropriate because it's a painting by Thomas Cole. Um, does anyone, you know Thomas Cole, clearly. Uh, Thomas Cole was an American romantic painter. He painted this series in the uh, 1830s, uh, 18, around 1836. He's the founder of a, of a, of a romantic artistic movement, the, the biggest romantic artistic movement in America, which was called the Hudson River School, which was located here, along the Hudson River. Uh, so there were, there were artists that painted along the Hudson River. Thomas Cole was the central figure in some ways, the way Emerson was the central figure in Concord of the Transcendentalists. And they all painted pictures kind of like this. Um, so I want to couple that painting with this uh, first stanza of a poem. This is my personal favorite. Matt shared with me his favorite romantic poem this morning, uh, this afternoon. So this is my personal favorite romantic poem. It's um, not by an American. It's by an English romantic. And I, you may or may not recognize the poem, but I'm sure you'll recognize some of the lines. Uh, it starts, In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. 
So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills and folding sunny spots of greenery. So if you look at the painting, there's some connection, right? There's some... So, but just I want to go through the lines of this. This is amazing. So, so does anyone know who this is? Yes. It is. This is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, it's sometimes called Kublai Khan, and it also has a longer title that I don't remember at the moment. Um, one of the things that makes this romantic is that it was inspired by a dream that Coleridge had while he was uh, on an opium trip. <coughs> uh, and he was... He was, uh, while he was on, you know, taking opium, while he was high on opium, uh, he was reading about Xanadu, and then this whole image came out, and the poem is, is kind of the image of, of what came out of that vision. So he starts, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. So, I mean, that's just amazing. What is a stately pleasure dome? I mean, you know, all you can picture is some big dome where there's, pleasure happening. <laughs> and Kublai Khan going, hey, let's make a pleasure dome. It's, uh, and then where Alf, the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man. So it's this underground caverns that go so deep, it's measureless. And where do they end up? Down to a sunless sea. So somewhere down there in the dark, there's a, there's a sea. <clears throat> at the bottom of all these caverns. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. So <clears throat> twice 10 miles round, there's this city of Xanadu with these huge pillars girdled round. <clears throat> and, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree and here were forests, ancient as the hills, and folding sunny spots of greenery. So how, how all this works, like where are these greens that have sunny, are they down in the bottom? Are they, is the city at the top and the caverns take you some? So the point is that the romantics were breaking into realms of fantasy that we don't find that difficult to relate to. But at the time, people were like, what are they writing? What is this about? This isn't about anything. Um, Coleridge, in particular, was worried <clears throat> that, and I think a lot of Coleridge's worries have actually come true. Um, so he wrote, uh, he has a very famous phrase he, he wrote called uh, the suspension of disbelief. And the, the idea of the suspension of disbelief was that in order to be able to appreciate a poem like this, in order to let yourself be taken into the imagery, you have to suspend disbelief. Because there's going to be some part of you that goes, this isn't really, a, this is not a real place. You know, this didn't really happen. And if, you, if that part of you is active, there's no way to just be taken into the imagery of the, of the piece. And his fear was that, that the, the Age of Enlightenment was going to make it uh, impossible for people to suspend disbelief long enough in order to, to, for this kind of more fanciful fiction uh, uh, to be appreciated and to have value. 
And, and what's, what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, the reason I say I think it came true is because even the word I use, which is fiction, right? So fiction means untrue literature. That distinction didn't exist forever. You know, in the Middle Ages, they didn't talk about you know, fiction and nonfiction. Oh, Chaucer, that's fiction. But, you know, something, they didn't have that distinction. There was just writing. And then you read writing. You didn't know when you were reading writing. It, you know, you didn't have this like, oh, this is fiction, therefore. Because what does fiction mean? It doesn't really count. It's for entertainment. That's typically what it means um, in our society. And, and so, I mean, I meet, I, I don't know how many people you meet, but I meet tons of people who, who will say, I never read fiction. I only read nonfiction. As if uh, that's sort of a badge of honor. You know, that I don't, I don't lower myself to reading things. And, and I don't blame people for that because I hardly read any fiction myself. <laughs> but it's partly because fiction's been reduced to entertainment. Like it's seen as something that you read. It's seen as something that's more frivolous than nonfiction. That nonfiction is more serious. It's more useful. Fiction is more frivolous. It's more for fun. And of course, you can kind of get a sense reading this poem that, why that impression may have developed. So Coleridge was worried <clears throat> that we were going to lose our capacity. We were going to lose the capacity for uh, non-literal writing to impact us. And we probably have, to some extent, lost that ability. Uh, I, I sort of mourn slightly myself, the fact that I don't know if I can read a piece of great literature like a novel and, and have it deeply impact me. I know I have at times, but it's kind of a stretch for me. You know, it's, it's easier for me to read spiritual texts or you know, things that feel more like they're about reality. And... Uh, it's more difficult for me to read fiction and allow it to touch me in, in the way that I know it. I know it was written to do that. And I think it's, it's part of what Coleridge was getting at. So, so in this painting, um, I forgot this moment what it's called, but it's basically part of a series of five. And they're all paintings of a fictional sort of empire that sort of looks a little bit Roman, and at different stages of sort of its beginnings, its height, its you know, decline, and its decay. Um, uh, it was, it, I forgot who bought it, but it was a, it was a popular series uh, of paintings at the time. Has that, those same elements. It's not a real place. It's a fictional place. It's purely imagination. Uh, so romantics were really all about imagination, or, you know, all about... Uh, creativity and imagination. So now, there's two ways in which I am a prop for romanticism. One I already told you, the fact that I'm wearing, you know, the romantic period begins in about the late 1800s. Typically, you know, it's hard to say exactly when, it, there wasn't a day when someone put a flag and said, here's romanticism. But it's typically thought that in the years after the French Revolution, uh, which I believe was 1789, <clears throat> it were, were the years where Romanticism flourished, partly because um, 
the French Revolution was one of the big instigators of Romanticism, uh, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about in a minute. So, but it wasn't until that time period that, for instance, it wasn't until that time period that people in the West started to actually get a hold of and read Eastern spiritual teachings. They weren't really available in the 1600s. You know, nobody had them. But in the late 1700s is when people started to read the Bhagavad Gita, and they started to read Lao Tzu. And they were going, what's all this interesting Eastern stuff that's so different than anything we've ever seen? Uh, and so it was at that time that sort of the world expanded, and people started to realize there were other cultures that were different than the, the European. The European world started to realize that there were other cultures. So, so on, on one level, I'm wearing some things that are from another culture, which is a romantic thing to do. Uh, at, so there's three levels, actually, that I'm a prop for my own talk. At, at another level, uh, I'm wearing something that's unique. So uniqueness is, was a romantic invention. <clears throat> uh, if this were 1690 and we were doing a talk, you wouldn't see this variety of clothing in the room. You'd look around, and all the men would more or less look one way, and all the women would more or less look another. There might be slight variations, and most of the variations that existed would probably have been functional. There was only this kind of material available the day that the shopkeeper made something. In the Romantic period, it became very important to everyone to be unique. And so you wanted to wear things that nobody else would wear. And I could probably guarantee if I walked down the street, I wouldn't find anyone wearing exactly this. this, is, this is, so the idea in the Romantic period was that your clothes should represent you. They're not just clothes. You know, you're not just wearing clothes to cover your body. You're wearing clothes that are a statement about who you are, that, that somehow exemplify you. And then the romantics took it way far out. Um, so my favorite uh, uniqueness story of romanticism was a, a poet, a French romantic poet named Novalis, who was famous, first of all, for wearing, you know, the, the, these kind of like floofy, very brightly colored uh, big puffs on the shoulders and like the tight waist and kind of bright purples and reds. And he would wear these very flamboyant outfits. And then he would go for walks in the morning. Uh, and he would walk his pet. And he happened to have a pet lobster, which he kept on the end of a bright purple thread. <clears throat> and he would walk very slowly with his little lobster that would kind of come along behind. And people, of course, would look at him and go, they wouldn't know what to go. They probably wouldn't go anything. They would just go. I don't think there was even a thought they could have. There's, there's this guy with a lobster. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't, why is he doing that? But this was like, because I wanted a pet lobster. Why? Because I wanted one. So it was, there was this sense of I can have what I want to have because I want to have it. Not for any reason, not because it means something in some social order that I'm a part of, but because the idea struck me, and I enjoyed it, and so I'm doing it. And, and that's, that became uh, a huge part of what romanticism meant. So uh, another invention of romanticism, which I may have spoken about in an earlier lecture here, but is the, is the menu. <clears throat> uh, 
If you ever went into a restaurant today and sat down and someone came to the table and put down a plate of beef and potatoes, and you'd say, I didn't order this. And they would say, this is what we got, which is how you would go to a restaurant in the 1600s. You didn't go in and tell people what you wanted. You went in and said, what do you got? Because <laughs> basically they had food. <clears throat> but after the French Revolution, <clears throat> you ever notice some words retain the, the nationality they came from? And restaurant is one of those. So restaurant is a French word. Uh, it, it, was <clears throat> it, came, it was developed in France after the French Revolution because in the French Revolution, which we will touch upon in another moment, uh, after the, the, the royal family was taken off the throne, the, the revolutionaries took it upon themselves to cut off the heads of all the noblemen. And as they said, the, the streets ran red with blood because they just lined them up and used the guillotine night and day, and they were just going to get rid of every nobleman that there was, and this was an outcome of the revolution. So what happened as a result of that was there were all these chefs that used to cook for the kings and the noblemen, and the noblemen didn't eat the same thing as everybody else. They had a few dishes that they liked. So then the chefs opened this new thing called a restaurant, which was a new kind of eating place. It was wild. Have you heard of these restaurants? You go in, and they don't just have one kind of food. They have like six. And you can pick which one you want, like you're a king. You know, can you imagine? People must have been like, this is great. This is like living like a king. Can you imagine what they would think if they walked into a grocery store? <laughs> wow. I mean, we, we experience things that they couldn't even dream of. We can get fresh-cut flowers in January. I mean, that's amazing. A king couldn't get fresh-cut flowers in January in the, in the Middle Ages. So the restaurant was this new kind of place where you could eat what you wanted to eat. And, and if, how quickly did we go from, you know, have you ever seen that comedian who talks about the, the wireless internet service on the airplane? He has this whole comedy routine about how you, somebody gets on a plane and they find out there's wire, and they're like, wow, they have wireless service on a plane. And then they start using it, and it goes down, and then they start, then they start getting indignant, like, what's wrong with the wireless service? And he's, the punchline of the joke is, how could you get so upset about something you didn't even know existed five minutes ago? <laughs> and all in five minutes, you've become totally entitled to something. So in a similar way, culturally, uh, we now feel completely entitled to things that were a miracle at the time of the Romantics because we live in their world. We live in the world they created or, or are still continuing to create through us. So let's go back a little bit and kind of give a little like history of this. How did this all happen, this, this incredible Romantic revolution of the late 1700s? The Enlightenment was an earlier revolution. So the Enlightenment was... The birth of modernism, great advancement over the Middle Ages, which were kind of dark. Uh, so in the Enlightenment, we can use an American example. Benjamin Franklin is a great example of an Enlightenment thinker in America. Uh, <clears throat> how many people are aware of Benjamin Franklin's experiment with the kite and the key? We've all, right? 
you get like the little picture. I live in Philadelphia, so I see that little picture everywhere. There's T-shirts with the little Ben Franklin with his tri hat and his kite and the key. So the idea was the lightning hit the kite. It ran down the wet string. It went through the key into like a Leyden jar. Voila, it was electricity. Uh, so we all know that. We're all taught it in school. How many, how many people have any idea, like why do we even know that? Of all the experiments, why do we know that one? <laughs> like, what was so great about this experiment? I mean, it's okay, great. You know? I mean, but really? And, and the thing is, we're not really taught why that was significant. We're just taught that it happened. And what, what we're usually taught is Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity, which is totally not true. Benjamin Franklin didn't discover electricity. What he did discover is that the, the electricity of static electricity the electricity that we can generate on the ground is exactly the same stuff as the electricity of lightning in the sky. That was the discovery. And the reason that was important was because that meant, that was considered to be proof of the fundamental uh, axiom of the Enlightenment, which is that the universe was governed by natural laws and that they were, they were, uh, they were the same everywhere through the, through the universe. And that proved it. You see, the electricity we have here on the Earth is the same as the electricity in the sky because electricity is one of the natural laws of the universe. It exists everywhere. So that was the whole... So the, the thing is, they got so excited in the Enlightenment. Uh, ben Franklin and Joseph Priestley. So Joseph Priestley was an English scientist. He whole other tangent I can't get into. He discovered uh, oxygen, maybe. Okay, I'll get into it. He discovered oxygen. He did an experiment. He discovered oxygen. He thought it was ether. He didn't know it was oxygen. He said, I discovered ether. And then a little while later, uh, Lavoisier did the same exact experiment, which he copied from Priestley. But he said, no, it's not ether. It's oxygen. And then there was this raging debate. Who discovered oxygen? The guy who first did the experiment and came up with the stuff, but labeled it something not oxygen. And I guess it all depends on what it ends up being called later, who discovered it. So Joseph Priestley was a scientist of the Enlightenment, good friends with a lot of the founding fathers, particularly with Ben Franklin. They wrote these amazing letters back and, cross, back and forth across the ocean because they, they were now like in the euphoria of realizing that the universe was governed by uh, natural laws that existed everywhere. And so... You know, they were writing letters that said, oh, my God, this is amazing. As soon as we figure out all the natural laws, we're going to be able to make heaven on earth. This is going to be so incredible. We're going to be able to move huge amounts of cargo from one place to the other through the air. And they were like just in anything they could imagine, they figured they'd be able to do because as soon as they were masters of natural law, everything was going to be amazing. Uh, and everybody believed that. And, and it fueled the Enlightenment. Uh, and America was, was the first great social experiment of the Enlightenment. It took the ideas of the Enlightenment and it applied it to a, to a form of government. And it was amazing. I mean, from the point of view of people, not from the point of view of the, the kings, that wasn't amazing at all, really it was bad. <laughs> but from the, from the point of view of people, it was like, oh my God, can you believe those colonies actually defeated the the the, the the English Empire? That's amazing. You can see the Enlightenment must be, it's working. It's totally working. Let's do it in France. 
you know? <laughs> okay, we'll do it in France. But then, yeah, they were successfully able to uh, oust the, the nobility, but it wasn't some kind of beneficial natural order that took over. It was some kind of mob rule and bloodlust. And, and what happened with a lot of poets who had been big supporters of the French Revolution, because the, the French Revolution was, you know, romantic movements repeat. That's part of the, the uh, theme of the night. So romantic movements tend to crop up again around revolutions. Revolutionary, particularly people's movements, inspire revolutionary artists. Uh, and so a lot of the poets were, were supporters of the French Revolution, and when it when it turned the way it did, uh, some of them had a real turn of heart. And that was the birth of Romanticism. And the basic idea was, I think we were wrong. I think we were wrong about the fact that the, the, the universe is governed by natural laws which we can understand and control. I think the universe is bigger than that. And if we, in our hubris, believe that we can control everything, we create uh, monstrous results. So who might, who might be able to guess a romantic novel that illustrated that point? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Um, because it was, and if you read Frankenstein, there's a lot of passages that are kind of like enlightenment philosophy versus romantic philosophy. Uh, and <clears throat> the basic idea was human beings think they can control life. Life is bigger than human beings. If you try to control life and you take all these bits and pieces from graveyards and put them together into a body and then run electricity through them, it's not going to create life. It's going to create a monster. And... And there's so much that was in Mary Shelley's book because what the romantics, part of what they were saying is the wholeness of the universe, the wholeness of these beautiful paintings, the, the American Hudson River painters always, if you look at their paintings, they're almost always these incredible vistas of imagined places. And that kind of wholeness is not just a sum of the parts. You can't recreate that just by building a set. There's something that's emerging as a whole that can't be duplicated. Just like you can't dig up bits and pieces from graveyards and sew them together and then run electricity through them and turn it into a human being. Because a human being isn't just the sum of its parts. So the Romantic movement was a wholeness movement. Uh, and what the Romantics said, what they believed was that, yes, we are creative. We do create in the world. But we create uh, in cooperation with a larger creative element, with the, a larger creative element of the universe. And we can work in tandem with that. And we can contribute. And we can influence the way creativity emerges. But we aren't the source of the creativity. The source is bigger than us. Uh, so, in they say the three uh, things that led to the, the the three triggers, catalysts for the for romanticism, and I I just love this fact too. So the French Revolution I just talked about. So another obvious one, uh, 
was the Industrial Revolution. You know, that was going to make everybody's life great. It didn't really make everybody's life great. It made most people's life terrible. And so people started to see this is really terrible for most people. I think this is another example of one of those things we thought was going to work out well. It's not really working out that well. Uh, so those two, obviously, big cultural events. The third trigger so the, of, the, of the, the triad of things that generated Romanticism, you, know, you had the French Revolution, this massive war. You had uh, the Industrial Revolution, which was a you know, multinational event, and Goethe. Goethe, the German poet, gets to be the third catalyst for Romanticism, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> so I teamed up with the French Revolution and the Industrial Revolution and created Romanticism. But Goethe's poetry inspired a whole generation of, of young poets who started to write poetry differently than what had come before. Poetry before, if you go back and you read things like John Milton's Paradise Lost or Dante, I mean, these are beautiful poems, you know, uh, absolutely. But they don't have that frivolous, there's a frivolous nature to Romanticism that, that we're sort of, we can accept that at the time was not really very acceptable. So it was a very different style. Uh, and, and so in Germany, you had a lot of Romantic philosophers. Hegel was a big impetus for a lot of those. And then there were his students, Fichte and Schelling. Uh, and they had this whole theory about how the universe progresses. The universe is one living whole that is evolving through the actions of humanity. And they wrote huge volumes of virtually indecipherable philosophy uh, that is amazing uh, but challenging. And in England, of course, in England you had the, the funnest group, which is uh, the most fun group. The most fun group, which is Coleridge and Wordsworth. That was uh, when Matt was talking about his favorite poet this morning. It was Wordsworth. Uh, and who was the third? So it was the two of them and then somebody's sister. Uh, and you know, the, the thing is, they had, the Romantics had a much more interesting time than the Enlightenment thinkers. If you think about the Enlightenment thinkers, they kind of hung out in coffee shops, talked about science. The Romantics, so, so um, it, was, it was one where uh, you know, John Keats, um, Mary Shelley, the Percy Bush Shelley was the, the, I guess they were married. Um, so there was one where Percy Bush Shelley, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, he was like just an amazing kind of crazy romantic, um, and this guy named Vladimir somebody somebody I don't really completely remember. So this is very famous. There's a there's a remember the movie called Altered States. Anyone remember that? This is like we're pulling back here to like the <laughs> 70s or something. So some of you probably weren't around. But anyway, there was a movie called Altered States. Ken Russell was the director, and it was about this guy who goes in a sensory deprivation tank, and he goes back. He de-evolutions back to being like a monkey. You know, like a like a early human. That's, a, that's really an aside. Only, only, only relates to today's story because Ken Russell also did a film called Gothic, which probably nobody's watched but me. Gothic is a movie about a, a very particularly interesting romantic weekend in sometime in the late 1700s where Percy Bush Shelley, Mary Shelley, 
Lord Byron, and they're like the three big names in, in romanticism in England, and this Vladimir, whoever he was, who was a doctor. So they went to have an amazing, uh, which is what they did, they would go and have an amazing opium weekend uh, somewhere. And while they were, so they got there and they were very disappointed because it was pouring rain. So the whole weekend it poured rain, uh, but you know they weren't going to let that stop them. So that what they would do is um, they would uh, put opium in, in water with lemon, and then they would either drink it or one of their other friends, um, De Chauncey, uh, Thomas De Quincey, Thomas De Quincey, yes, the poet. He would he would soak rags in this opium lemon juice, and then he would just carry it in his pocket and then suck on it every, periodically. <laughs> Um, and there's a whole reason why drugs are important in this, and it's not just for recreational purposes, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we got to this weekend, and they decided, okay, it's rainy. We're on, they were on an island, I think, some little island off the coast. It's rainy. There's nothing to do here. It's boring. Let's take opium and tell horror stories. Okay, let's do that. And so they were trying to scare each other, telling stories. And that was the night... Uh, that Mary Shelley, free form, told the story of Frankenstein. You know, that was her contribution to the evening. And this other guy named Vladimir, I can't, whose name I can't remember, told the original story of Count Dracula that night. So both of those classic uh, stories were born on the same night in, in this, on the same island during this wacky opium weekend uh, that they were having. So while we're talking about that particular group, uh, the other thing that those, particularly the English ones, uh, they're sort of the first pop stars. You know, the, so uh, there's, a, there's a scene in that movie, Gothic, which I'm highly not recommending. Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't see it. It's not very good. But there's a, there's a great, there's, you know, if you're kind of into romanticism, you see things in there that make it interesting, even though the movie's not very good. But there's one point where they're trying to get to this island without anybody seeing them because there's all these sort of teenage girls looking for Percy Bush Shelley to like mob him and grab his clothes like the Beatles, you know, because he was a rock star of the time. And people in and his poems would be often released one at a time. And they were like hit singles. And everybody would want to have the poem. Have you seen Percy Bush Shelley's new poem? And everybody would want to have it. They'd be reading it and like talking about it. It was a, it was a thing. Uh, and and what was interesting about the Romantics in an American we haven't got to this, so I'm not going to go into it. Uh, what was interesting was, unlike earlier forms of art, it was really more the art that people were into. But with Romanticism, there was a personality behind the art, and this is what really defines pop music. Pop music is always about the person who does it. So, for instance, if you have classical music, it doesn't matter that much whether it's played by the Philadelphia Philharmonic or the New York or you know, it doesn't which orchestra plays it's not that. I mean, obviously they have to be good, but if assuming they're good, you know, it's it's not that important who plays it. You don't even really know who's playing. But with pop music, it's important if you go see a Rolling Stone concert that it's actually Mick Jagger. You know, if you got there and it was somebody else, you say, man, this is, not, this is not the concert, right? So that it doesn't work with popular music because it's, 
the personality is intertwined with the event. And that was true of these poets. They were, they were personalities that people loved. Uh, and that wasn't true before then. Now we take it for granted. But before then, it was, that wasn't the case. So you had those. Those are the English. Then you had you know, Novalis, and there were others in France. And then in America, which is one of the reasons I love Romanticism, is you had, the, uh, you had these guys, the, the Hudson River School. But more famously, you had the New England Transcendentalists, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson being this, the central character of that. Um, and and, and you know, in that group, if you want to like, talk about, you know, OK, who, who's in that group? There's Ralph Waldo Emerson. There's a woman named Margaret Fuller, who you may not know, but someday I should do a talk on Margaret Fuller, because she's important for everybody to know about. Um, you know, I don't know that there would have been an American transcendentalism without Margaret Fuller. Um, and I don't know if there would have been uh, the kind of feminist movement in America if there wasn't Margaret Fuller, who wrote something called Women of the 18th Century uh, before her untimely death in like the 1840s. Um, so there's Margaret Fuller, there was Elizabeth Peabody. So some of these names I've mentioned, she was the one who was translating so much German philosophy, which was romantic philosophy, of course, that, that she actually spoke with a German accent just from translating. Um, that's what they said, anyway. Uh, and then there was, of course, Henry David Thoreau, who's considered to be the, the origination point of the modern environmentalist movement. And then uh, you had uh, Longfellow, the poet and writer, and you had uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, of course, uh, and then you had Herman Melville. Uh, <clears throat> so you're doing pretty good right there. <clears throat> they, there was a guy named Jones Very, who hardly anybody knows. He's a poet, though. Beautiful poet. Had some kind of spiritual experience. So this is like, these are romantic things to happen, right? You get a feel for the stories. You start to feel like romantic. These are not stories that happened in the Middle Ages. These are romantic era stories. So Jones Very had some kind of God realization experience and started to be spout this incredible sort of inspired divine poetry. He lived in Salem, Massachusetts. And Emerson just thought he was amazing, you know, just the most amazing. Like, he just loved to have him come to his house so he could sit there with him. And this poetry would just flood out of his mouth. But something happened, and he kind of lost it. And, he, and he, it stopped happening. And, uh, and from that moment on, Emerson would only ever talk about him in the past tense. Which, which is just kind of a romantic weirdness. <laughs> but he, would, he just, because he was, the Jones very he knew was gone. So he only referred to him in the past tense. So you had Jones Vary. And then if you, if you kind of extend that to people who weren't really transcendentalists, and some of whom, uh, well, who weren't really transcendentalists but were very influenced, you had Walt Whitman. And then, then there were those people who were influenced because they didn't like the transcendentalists. So that would be like Emily Dickinson and... Uh, Mark Twain. But basically, you couldn't have been a writer at that time and not be influenced, either because you liked them or because you didn't like them, by transcendentalism. Uh, so it really, def that romantic period. You know, so we live in an interesting country in terms of romanticism, because our culture, American culture, really, you know, not politically, because of course that was already established, but culturally, in terms of literature, was established really around that time. And that was exactly the time of romanticism. So our culture is very romantic. Uh, 
in nature. And you know, we don't really have roots beyond, beyond that. Earlier American writers, as, as Emerson would say, were really more copying English writers. They weren't really American yet. And then these were the first truly American writers. So that's the, you know, so that was the original romantic movement. Is all that in you know mid late 1700s to mid 1800s um, whole thing changes here with the Civil War that kind of messed up the whole Romantic movement. But um, so then you fast forward and you get to the 60s. Again, a big war is the catalyst, which is the Vietnam War. Uh, and what does it do? You know. So this I, I definitely talked about back in the fall, but it's worth saying again. Romantic movements are conservative movements. You know, I mean, the terms progressive and conservative are tricky, but uh, <clears throat> and we use them in different ways culturally. But in literature, romantic movies are considered conservative, not progressive. They're conservative because. And it kind of, if you think about the term romantic, like if you say so, oh, they're so romantic, that usually kind of feels like a throwback to something, right? And, and that's kind of where romanticism comes from, because we went through, the Enlightenment was progressive. Progress. We can make progress. We can learn how the world works. We can learn these natural laws. We can control everything and make progress. That was, that's the sense of progressive that the Enlightenment was. Then the Romantics were like, wait a minute, this progress isn't working. This is turning into a huge mess. I think we need to go back. There's something we left behind in terms of the mystery of the universe. Yeah, I get it. The church was a mess. The whole killing witches thing was bad. I'm glad we didn't do that anymore. But there may have been something about this idea of a higher power that we need to re-examine on the other side of our progress. So there's a certain going back quality. And the going back also means going back to the more fundamental aspects of ourselves, including nature. So the thing about uh, the Industrial Revolution, it didn't really care about nature. There was, it was basically about factories, and it was about leveling stuff and building factories and, and making the world work for us. And the Romantics wanted to go back. And if you think about the hippies in the 60s, like the, the classic image of of the hippie revolution. One of the classic images is, is the soldiers with the guns, the rifles, which would represent progressivism in, in the sense that I mean it. And then the flower child, right, all dressed like, a, like almost like a fairy or something, putting a, a, the stem of a flower in the end of the barrel. So it's kind of like, no, nature is going to ruin your guns. You know, nature, this little flower is more powerful than your army. And, and we need to go back to that. And so there's a whole rebirth of romanticism in the, in the 60s. This inc incredibly romantic uh, uprising occurs in the wake of the, of the Vietnam War. And, and what do you see? You know, and if you think about what the hippies were rebelling against, you know, the, the image of the, the 50s, right, was, was so we're, in, we're kind of in New York, so you know, the 50s in New York, you, you picture men with suits, all the same, and hats, flooding into subways and flooding out and looking all identical and wearing them all night long, right? That was, uh, 
interesting aside, um, Polo became uh, really popular clothing line because they recognized that businessmen only had one thing they could wear, which was a business suit. If you were a businessman, you wore a business suit. And so when they got home at night, they kept wearing their suit. And it's not very comfortable. So they said, I know we can create something for businessmen to wear at night that won't diminish their status. Because they couldn't come home and like put on jeans and a t-shirt because that's their businessmen. So they made basically normal clothes that were really expensive and had a label on it. So then, okay, I can come home and wear a polo because this costs 300 bucks. That proves I'm a businessman. Um, but that's the image of the, you know, that time period. Is, and so then the hippies are not wearing business suits, right? They're wearing jeans with, with holes. They're wearing, they're wearing things that look like something Novalis would wear. Bright colors, uh, tie-dye, everything's unique. Tie-dye is perfect romantic clothing because every one of them is unique. You can't make two identical. In fact, if you manufacture tie-dye, that's really unromantic. You know, if, if you found out that they were just churned, like this tie-dye shirt that should be completely unique is actually getting churned out by the thousands, exactly identical, you totally are not going to want to wear that if you're romantic. That's, that's some kind of fake romantic you know, that, that is just uncool. Um, so the term cool, great, um, great romantic term in the, you know, out of the 60s. A lot of the, a lot of the cool romantic stuff came from uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, so drugs is another theme that runs through romanticism. So someday I'm going to write, I have this idea to write an essay. I have not done it yet, but I have a plan to do it. There are incredible writings on drug use that pop up in all romantic periods. So the four that I'm, I'm most aware of is in those early English days, you had Thomas de Quincey. Thomas de Quincey was the guy with the opium rag in his pocket. He used to walk around London late at night when you could go into the operas for free, sort of after they were kind of winding down, and then he'd walk in and suck on his rag and then go, whoa. Uh, so he wrote a book called Confessions of an Opium Eater. Uh, not, a, not a book, but kind of a very long essay. Um, so William James, whom I talked about here at one time, was, was, he was post the Romantic period, but he was definitely a Romantic at heart. He was Emerson's godchild and very influenced by Romanticism. His drug of choice, he and his brother Henry, the novelist, uh, their drug of choice was nitrous oxide. Uh, the stuff you get at the dentist. So they would suck that and then pass out and then wake up and write stuff. Um, and he wrote something. I don't know if I remember the name of it. He wrote an essay that I think was published. It was published somewhere, like maybe The Atlantic. You know, the Atlantic's a really old magazine. Um, and it was on you know, the, the beneficial, because he was a psychologist, the beneficial use of nitrous oxide or something like that. But it was not that different than De Quincey's article. There was another American romantic, slightly earlier than Emerson, Fritz somebody, I can't remember what his last name was, but he, he wrote a book called Confessions of a Hashish Eater. And uh, he was probably the most kind of whacked out of, of this particular crew. So he would, really was eating lots of hashish. And 
And he wrote a big book, about 400 pages, chronicling every experience he had. And they're just wild and off the charts. And then, of course, in the, in the 60s, you had Timothy Leary. And what did he write? He wrote a book about his drug experiences, about LSD. And I don't remember what it's called now. There's the electric Kool-Aid assets. That was Thomas Wolfe, I think, right? But, and that, but um, Timothy Leary also wrote something. Anyway, it doesn't matter that much. What matters is, why does recreational drug use associated with the Romantic period? See, I find this fascinating because it's not just that they like drugs. It was because one of the things that was happening in the Romantic era was a discovery of the interior dimensions of, of being human. So when, one of the things that differentiates a romantic novel from an earlier novel. If you read an earlier novel, like I used to love Arthurian legend, so you read uh, La Morte d'Arthur, which is the French, uh, who wrote that? I uh, can't remember. Mallory. So a guy named Mallory wrote La, La Morte d'Arthur. When I was a kid, I loved this. You know, and I could see why I loved it, because there's no interiority. There's, there's nothing complicated about it. Lancelot walks up. He walks up to the guy, chops him in half. You know? <laughs> then he walks up to another guy, chops him in half. <laughs> there's nothing, there's no thought process. There's, no, there's never any passages of, you know, Lancelot was thinking, does he really want to kill somebody? He was thinking about the, the person he killed yesterday. He's feeling bad. There was nothing like that. They didn't write about any interiority. Uh, the romantic writers are the ones, like Mary Shelley, she's got long passages of just the thought process of the characters. So you're inside their heads. So the romantics were getting very interested in what goes on inside our heads. And, and one of the things that, that they were... And so they were intrigued by the fact that drugs would change your internal experience. And how does that happen? What, how does... You know, it was a... <clears throat> it wasn't like they weren't really into it for fun. They were. They, it was some kind of self-experimentation on, on on how your internal experience can be altered. Uh, so I kind of went back to something that I forgot where I was. Like the artist Alex Gray and his wife. Like the artist Alex Gray and his wife, exactly. I know. I mean, I don't, I don't condone drug use, and I don't use drugs. And I actually have been to Alex Gray and his wife's New Year's Eve party one year. Um, and I was one of the few straight people. Uh, and it's fun, but it's just not my thing. <clears throat> uh, but similar, yeah. I mean, it's very romantic, what's, what's kind of happening around that scene. So you have drug use at... at um, as a means of exploring the interiority. You know, the other thing that romantics invented, which is related to interiority, is irony. There's no irony before romanticism. And irony is basically a juxtaposition of two levels of reality. And you can kind of see how with drug use, you've got like the way you normally see. And all of a sudden, now you're in the same reality, but it's kind of coming from some other place, uh, what happened here. So uh, one of the inventions of Romanticism, and this is the third way that I am a representation of Romanticism, sitting here in front of you, is uh, cameo appearances. 
there were no cameo appearances prior to the Romantics, but the Romantics got really into cameo appearances. So playwrights would always put themselves in their plays as one of the minor characters. And the reason was because they were trying to mess with your mind. That's, romantics are always trying to mess with your mind, whether it's through drugs or through irony, whatever it is, they're trying to mess with you. You know, Because they're like, I wrote this play, and I'm a character in the play, so who am I? And people are like, why is he in the play? Ugh. And then people get upset, because they're, like, they're not used to Now we go, oh, a cameo appearance. But at the time, it was, it was absurd and, and felt wrong. Uh, the playwright should be sitting kind of in a special booth, being honored, not be some minor character on the, in the play. So that was one of the ways. So the way that I am representing irony is I am both the giver of this lecture and I am a prop for the lecture at the same time. So there's two of me sitting here. Am I, am I the lecturer or am I the prop? And I'm both. So now this is... <clears throat> this is perhaps the most significant uh, realization of romanticism, which is that there isn't just one reality. And this, is where, this is where the drugs come in. You know, that, because what they are realizing is reality appears to be one thing, but you could take this, you could suck on this opium rag and reality changes. So reality isn't fixed. In the, in the pre-romantic era, reality is fixed. There's one reality, and that's it. So, so some of the devices that the romantics start to use, <clears throat> it's in romantic literature, is the first time that you find uh, antagonist characters who are the most sympathetic character in the piece. So in earlier writing, basically it's more black and white. The good guy is a good guy all the way through. And the bad guy is a bad guy all the way. You don't see the bad guy being nice to his family. You know, that's, there's, no, there's none of that kind of confusion. The bad guy's kind of bad all the time, and the good guy's pretty good all the time. When you get into romantic poetry, you sometimes have a good character who's actually the bad guy, really. He's, he's in the role of being the protagonist, of, of being the champion of what is good in the story. But actually, his personality, you like the bad guy better. You know, the, the, the bad guy actually is, is, has more integrity, more, is more true, more honest, more sensitive, but happens to be, you know, playing the role of, you know, if you're English, the guy who's playing the role of the French, in the French military, and, and you're supposed to like the English guy, but you actually don't like the English guy. You like the French guy. Uh, and so they're messing with you again, you know, to say, look, life is not as simple. And then look at the French Revolution. We thought we were the good guys. Who was the good guy there? You know, we, we thought we were the good guys, and then, then we started chopping everybody's head off. But isn't that what bad guys do? So are we good guys or bad guys? And this, this is the kind of device the romantics were using. So how this propagates to us uh, is we know now that, for instance, indigenous cultures aren't bad because they're different from our culture. That's something that we take completely for granted. You know, that was definitely not taken for granted for most of human history. In most of human history, which is locked into a view that there's one truth and one way things are, that means if ever two people disagree about what's true, either 
One of them or the other or both have to be wrong. And if somebody's wrong about reality, that makes them dangerous. And so there's, no, there's very little room in that kind of... I have a, very, a philosopher that I'm very fond of named Timothy Morton, whom I'm going to be speaking here about at some point. He has a nice line that I like uh, in which he says, philosophies like elections have consequences. Uh, and we don't tend to think that philosophies have consequences. We just think they're, they're ideas about life, but not actually life. But in fact, the philosophies that are permeating through our culture actually have consequences. And this is something I personally feel more people have to understand, that there are philosophical implications, uh, and philosophies have um, have consequences. So as this romantic idea of multiple layers of reality started to seep into culture, that's when you had, for instance, in the 1960s and, and beyond, you had this whole movement. You, know, you started to feel like, no, indigenous cultures, they are, they're in their own context. They may look wrong from our context, but in their own context, they're right. So they need to be respected and appreciated in their context. That's not possible in the 1600s. It's just literally not possible to do. It's, it's just, there is, that philosophy doesn't exist yet to happen. And now it's, now it, now it's, now we're all take it for granted. Yes. Absolutely, of course. Uh, philosophies also take time to, to you know, where, where the Romantic Revolution is about 250 years in. So one of the things that I do when I speak is, is to say, look, we are the Romantics. The Romantics, it wasn't just a time period that ended. The Romantic Revolution is, we've gone really far, and we need to go further. There, there was a whole different paradigm that they were introducing, and the program has not been completed. <coughs> so yes, we have to claim our romantic heritage and, and bring it forth. So the last group is the hipsters, which I'm not going to say much about. But this, if you look at hipster culture, it's a total reemergence of romanticism. Uh, another philosopher that I'm very fond of named Robert Brandom uh, has a famous quote in one of his books, famous among like, you know, a half dozen philosophers who read his books. But anyway, <laughs> among that crowd, it's, it's a well-known line where he says, transcendentalism uh, never died. It just went underground. And the reason I like it is because it's like romant romanticism comes and goes. If you look through history, particularly during times that get challenging, romanticism comes back. And then progress. It's, there's always this back and forth between more progressive, we can do everything, types of philosophies that take power for a while and then something happens and then more romantic movements take over. So the hipsters is the most recent rebirth of romanticism. And if you look at the kinds of things that hipsters and hipster culture, to me, hipster culture is, is one of the things that I draw the most um, uh, that, that gives me the most hope for the future because it's holding, it's a placeholder for romanticism. Uh, you know, so, you know, hipsters want to do amazing things, like uh, make things with their hands. 
that's so Henry David Thoreau. I mean, you know, I just wish more people read Henry David Thoreau. But it's, you know, because Henry David thought, like, he would think this, like, you should never use something like this. Why? Because you don't know where this came from. You don't know how this was made. Everything, he wanted everything in his world, he wanted to know exactly where it was made. He wanted to know what farm it was grown from. He wanted to know from the earth to his house what happened. And, you know, you could see that's this, we have more capacity for that today than he ever had. I mean, he, had to, he could do it, but he had to live in this little hut, and he could hardly have any stuff. Um, but, you know, this is going to be manufactured, which there's no soul in it. You know, he wouldn't want it. So, so the hipster culture is the most recent reemergence of romanticism. And what I want to do to complete this lecture is we're going to do a guided contemplation slash meditation. Because the thing with romanticism is the consciousness of the enlightenment you know, which was established by such figures as Isaac Newton and Rene Descartes, is a part of us. And the consciousness of Romanticism is a part of us. And one isn't better than the other. They both have their strengths and weaknesses. <clears throat> so now just sit with your eyes closed. And first of all, just become aware of the richness of your inner vision. Notice the feelings that you feel, the thoughts that arise. And most importantly, the sense of inner space. We have this rich sense that when we turn inward, We're looking at thoughts and feelings that arise in a vast inner space of mind. The early romantics were 
profoundly compelled by this sense of inner space. Feel your body right now. Feel your arms on your lap. Feel your butt on the seat of your chair. Feel the clothes that hang on your body. Feel the air on your face. And then as you feel your body, <clears throat> feel it from the perspective of being inside of it. Feel how your eyes are in front of you. Your hands are below. You are experiencing, feeling your body from the inside out. But wait, isn't this whole experience of your body that you're having sitting here, isn't that all happening inside your mind? Now feel your body and all your bodily sensations. As if they are floating in the space of mind. That those feelings exist inside you. The feeling of your body is inside you And you are the expanse of awareness all around it. And then keep switching back and forth. Place yourself 
inside your body and feel your body surrounding you. Experience it from the inside out. And then switch and see how the feeling of your body exists inside you, in your mind, surrounded by consciousness. Notice that you can go back and forth. These kinds of tricks these kind of shifts in perspective were what romantics loved. Am I experiencing my body from the inside out? Or am I the consciousness within which my body exists? These kinds of mental exercises and the literary and visual devices that the romantics used to depict them show us that reality might not be fixed. In fact, reality might be malleable, it might be changeable. And if only we could learn to let go of our fixed perspectives, we would find that reality is radically alterable. The Enlightenment thinkers were on fire with the realization that it was possible for human beings to understand natural laws and affect change in the world. The Romantics were on fire with the recognition
that by engaging with the inner work of shifting perspectives, we would see that reality was never fixed. and can always be changed. So just let yourself feel those two parts of yourself. <coughs> the part that's inspired by understanding the world to affect change. And another part that's inspired by the possibility of affecting change through inner work that shifts our perspective. Right now, we're all sitting here, observing those two aspects of ourself. On the one hand, we could imagine that we're all having completely separate, isolated experiences of that. But I would invite you to shift and imagine that we are all having the same experience of seeing the, enlightened, the enlightenment part of our mind and the romantic part of our mind. Jeff or Matt or whoever you are seeing it. All in together. Something that includes all of us but is also more than all of us individually. How far in that direction can you go? How big a shift away from isolation and separation are you willing to enact. Okay, thank you very much. Um, 
you know, that kind of mental thought experiment is the kind of thing the romantics loved. You know, they, and I love that. <laughs> you know, I love to blow my own mind, and I have since I was about four years old. Uh, <clears throat> just to consider things and go, well, you know, just because everybody believes it's like this, what if it were like this? And how far am I willing to go in that direction? How big a shift am I willing to entertain beyond what's normal? And that's, you know, that's what the romantics were all about. You know, in, in the, the pre-romantic era, <clears throat> conformity and being normal was what was valued. In the romantic era, exploring beyond what's normal was what was valued. And we have both of those in us, and they're both valuable. Uh, <clears throat> but when you study the romantics, uh, and you look at the lives that they led, uh, you realize, you feel, I feel, if I read about the, the great romance, I feel the conservatism in myself because they were so far out. And I think I'm really far out. <clears throat> you know, I often pride myself in that thought. But then I read about the lives that the romantics were living and how far they were willing to go. You know, and, and I just think, wow, I'm so conservative in some ways. You know, I am just like two-car garage conservative. And, and they were so out there. Um, and I aspire to be further out than I currently am. And I, I aspire to inspire as many others to be far out uh, as want to take that journey. Why? Because that's how we create alternative possibilities. You, know, you don't create alternative possibilities by just thinking about them. You have to live them, demonstrate them, uh, and show that there's something of value there so that they can, like the romantics, lead to a new world. There's so many things that we enjoy today that just would never have happened if some people weren't willing to walk around with lobsters on the end of strings <clears throat> and, you know, uh, risk all kinds of ridicule and, and, and imprisonment uh, to, to say, no, I can be different if I want to be different. And I think everybody should feel that they, they're unique. I think we should live in a world where everybody thinks they're unique. And they'd come here and go, wow, everybody thinks they're unique. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> It's so cool. So that's my talk on romanticism. Uh, it's a magnificent period in history. I suggest everybody spend as much time as they can enjoying it. <laughs>